The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. Now, the emergence of AI chatbots is one of the most exciting but confusing developments in recent technological history. So everyone is playing with these things, but we're also trying to find out what are they actually? We have questions like how powerful are they? What do they actually know? And how much of this is magic trick versus real technology? Let's get to the bottom of it today. And we're going to do it by bringing in two guests with I mean, about as polar views as I think we can find, and maybe we're going to find some common ground between the two of them, and that will actually tell us a lot. Joining us today are Blake Lemoyne. He's the ex-Google engineer who concluded after testing the company's Lambda chatbot that it was sentient, also an expert on AI chatbots, and you can go back to our episode with him to hear all about his journey at Google. We also have Gary Marcus, an academic author and an outspoken AI critic who is the author of Rebooting AI. Great to have you both on. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Yeah, this is great. I was, uh, anyway, I could go on and on about how excited I am to have this conversation, but better we just do it. So <laughs> let's start with this. Um, how much credulity do we need to give these bots when they speak to us? Like, how do we believe them? Blake, do you want to start? Well, I mean, so it depends on how grounded the systems are. Uh, so it's a sliding scale. It's not all or nothing. You would give Bing Chat GPT more credulity than something like Chat GPT, since it's at least grounded in Bing search results, and it can have some kinds of citations of what it's saying. Um, when it's just the language model producing the content itself, it's pulling whatever it can out of thin air. Right? And it's memories. It's, I mean, whatever it remembers from its training data, if there's an answer there, but one of the big problems is that these chatbots don't say, I don't know. And that's a big flaw in them. That's right. So Gary, I'd like you to pick up on that. First of all, I'm curious what you think if, if this Bing chatbot is doing a better job in terms of believability than the others. And then what should we make of the fact that they're, they very confidently bullshit? I, mean, I think the word here is credibility, not credulity. I think we're credulous if we give them credibility. Um, I don't believe a word that they say um some of what they say is of course true but you have machines that are kind of like statistically true like they're approximately correct and the approximations aren't that great and so like if you have them do a biography of me some of what it says will be true and some won't so bing i think has gotten better over the last few days because i keep make fun, making fun of it as people send me on twitter's the biographies that it writes of me the the first one that it wrote of me said that I thought that it was better than Google. And in fact, the only public comment I had made at that point was that we don't have enough scientific data to tell whether we should trust either of them. And I said, for all we know, maybe Google was better. That was before Bing kind of publicly fell apart and went wild. Um, and, and we really don't have enough data to compare them. Blake actually has some interesting thoughts on that possibly. Um, but um, it just made this up. And then there was another version that made some other stuff about me. And of course, some of what it said about me is actually true. So it does a web search, finds a bunch of inf information, and then pipes that through a large language model. And the problem is that large language models themselves 
can't really fact check what they're saying. They're just statistical prediction engines. Um, and there, again, might be some interesting back and forth with Blake around that. But I would say that inherently what a pure large language model does is it predicts words and sentences, and it doesn't ground that, to use his word, um, in any kind of reality. And so um, sometimes it's going to be right because the statistical prediction of text gives you the right answer. And sometimes it's going to be wrong, but there's no inherent um, fact-checking there. It's like the difference between The New Yorker, where you know they actually fact-check their stuff, and so you have good reason to trust what it says is true and some you know random blog or something like that where you have no idea if they've done any fact checking at all like sometimes they'll get it right and sometimes they won't but you shouldn't give them any credibility because there's no process in place there um, to make sure that it's right now of course they're trying to add things on but we can see from the results that their efforts to do so are pretty limited yeah so the description of it as just predicting text is accurate for the initially like the pre-trained model that is absolutely what it's trained to do but the subsequent fine-tuning and especially once you add reinforcement learning it's no longer just trying to predict the next token in a stream of text uh specifically in the reinforcement learning paradigm it's trying to accomplish a goal it, it is um and I mean, that part is interesting. So, you know, you could think about, um, you know, a pure version of GPT-3 before they started adding yeah. on reinforcement learning. That's kind of what I meant by a pure language uh, model. Yeah. And then you, right, so there there's, um, we actually don't disagree about that much. That's going to be the interesting <laughs> thing about this podcast. Um, the the um, if, if you look at a completely pure case of a transformer model trained on a bunch of data, it doesn't have any mechanisms for for truth. Now, except the sort of accidental contingency. And there, there are inherent reasons why these systems hallucinate, and maybe I can in a minute articulate them. But so they inherently make mistakes, they inherently hallucinate stuff, and you can't trust them. Now you add on these other mechanisms. One example is the RLHF stuff that OpenAI added into ChatGPT. And we don't know exactly what's going on there. This is the stuff where, at least um, in part, they had Kangen laborers reading horrible situations and trying to um, anticipate them. But what we do know is that those systems, as far as I can tell, um, and Lambda is a different category maybe, um, but <coughs> for ChatGPT, we, we know that it doesn't, for example, go out to Wikipedia or go out to the web at large in order to check things. But Bing, Bing is even a whole other thing, right? Because but Bing does. As far as, I, as far as I understand it, it, it takes a large language model, feeds it into um, a search engine, does queries based on that, which may or may not be the ones you intend because if, if I remember correctly, there are large language models in the front end. In any case, I know there are in the back end from something I read yesterday. Um, and so the back end can reintroduce error there. So even if it does the right searches, which is an important question, at the end, you pipe back through a large language model and you don't fact check that. Um, I think it's worth pausing here to talk about why large language models do hallucinate. There was one metaphor in the New Yorker the other day about compression and lossy compression. I think that's kind of on the right track. It's not exactly correct, but it, um, it, it's sort of there. The way I think about it is that these things don't understand the difference between individuals and kinds. 
So I actually wrote about this 20 some years ago, in my book, The Algebraic Mind. And I gave an example there, which is, um, I said, suppose it was a different system, but had the kind of same problem. I said, suppose my Aunt Esther wins the lottery. If you have a system that only represents relations between kinds without a specific way of representing individuals, you get bleed through. So if my Aunt Esther wins the lottery, the system might think that other, I don't know, women who work in the state of Massachusetts win the lottery. Um, we saw a real-world example of that with large language models. We've actually seen many, but one really salient one where Galactica says Elon Musk <coughs> died in a car crash in 2018. And of course he didn't, but it's an example of him being assimilated to a large category of things, we'll say for the sake of argument, rich white guys in California. And some rich white guys in California, after you hear their names, you hear the word died in a car crash. And it, it, it just bleeds through between those. And so it loses relations between things like subjects and predicates. And the details of this are complicated, but that's roughly the intuition about what's going on. And that's why you get so many hallucinations. So if you put that that's on the your output of human. your system, like, that's no different than it, to a whole different degree, an entire degree. Yeah, it's a, they, they, it's a different and, degree. And, and, and it, there's the a qualitative difference. No, there's a qualitative difference. Okay. There, which is the, the qualitative difference is we actually can track individual entities and their properties aside from their cases. Our memories are fallible. There are still problems, but we have a conceptual distinction in which we represent individuals. So like, I know some things about you now and I, yeah. I've built a kind of like mental database of Blake. And heretofore, it's all been things I read and things that we did together on Twitter and direct messages. It's an unusual way. This is the first time um, that I'm seeing you eye to eye over, over Zoom. Um, so now I, I know, for example, that you do some calls in a noisy room, and I've added that um, to, <laughs> to my you know mental database. Um, and I'm learning something about your personality, and I learned some actually through the DMing. One day we did that while I was texting while walking um, along the water here in Vancouver, and I remember that. So that's part of my mental databases, like how we interacted. Um, yeah. But I, I have these records and I have records of, of, of Alex. So I just saw him in a conference in Europe and we were on a bus together. And I, I yeah. know these kind of like biographical so The details. short answer is the technology exists to give that ability to these systems. And it has been turned off, at least in the case of Lambda, as a safety feature because they're worried about what will happen if these systems learn too much about individual people. So I don't want to um, uh, put you in a bad position with respect to NDAs and, and, and things like that. And things I don't you care know about, about. <laughs> Well, yeah, then, come on, Gary. Great, then bring Let's it. <laughs> so so, so um, when you say the technology has been added, I mean, there's a question of, you know, where in the system it is. So I think the general public doesn't understand these as sort of individual bits of technology with different strengths and weaknesses and so forth. You do, I think Alex does, but um, it's easy to assimilate these things into a sort of generalized form of magic, like data in and something out. But the reality is like each component part, it's like a, you know, a carburetor in a car. It can do certain things with certain tolerances and certain conditions. So you can add a, a outside technology, outside the large language model, to do various things, and you know, if and you I've want to, I've tried to draw that distinction before. Like my line on it is, Lambda isn't a large language model; it has a large language model. That's one component of a much more complex system.
and that's really critical. And in, in our DMs, our, um, you've been very clear about that. And I, maybe you've been in, in public as well. Um, I think most people don't appreciate that. So when we get into these questions about like, what's the capability of X system, Lambda is actually pretty different. And I think the best point you made to me in our debate about consciousness is there's a bunch of stuff in Lambda I don't even know what it is, right? It's not publicly disclosed. There's stuff that's more than just what's in the paper and so forth. Um, and so I, I don't know what mechanisms, for example, Lambda has for tracking individuals. And you could make an argument, and you have, that that bears on the sentence um, case. And it it's ultimately it bears on all of these. Like, just to be very clear, mm -hmm. currently that feature of the system is turned off. So then you could ask if you wanted to turn it on, like, how do you build it? So the output of a large language model is just a string. You can play some games around that, but essentially it's a string. It's a sentence, right? And so then you need some system to parse that sentence into constituent parts if you then want to, say, update a database. Tracking individuals is just a version of that problem. And it, I think it's um, rife throughout the industry right now that pure LLMs don't directly interface with databases. You can build different hacks to do that. But again, your output is a, is a string. And so like, you could also wonder, like, why don't you use these things um, in Alexa? And, and the answer, you know, Alexa, like, just shut down a lot of their operation. They're not really using large language models. And the answer, at least partly, hinges on just because you have a large language model that can talk to you doesn't mean that its output is in some machine interpretable form that you can reliably count on. And we see that, like, with math examples. So, so people you know, type in a word problem into chat and sometimes it gets it right and sometimes it doesn't. The problem is not really the math. You could, you know, you could pipe it off to Wolfram Alpha. The problem is in knowing which math to send to Wolfram Alpha. Um, and similarly, the problem for, let's say, representations of people is you can have it say something, let's say, about Alex, but it might be true, it might be false, or it say something about you or me, it might be true, it might be false. It's not literally hard to maintain a database, but it's hard to bridge the worlds, and this is why neurosymbolic AI is so much at the crux of all of this. Um, we need better technologies for bridging between the worlds, for fact-checking, figuring out what you should update the databases. It's just not straightforward. So I could speculate in the case of Lambda, like they've got some tools to do this, but maybe they don't work very well, and that's why they've turned them off. And Blake, as, as you respond oh, no, to this- it, it gets creepy Blake. after a little while. Like once the system starts to know you personally very well at a deep level, it gets disturbing. So Blake and I are going to have a little disagreement there, but there's also something important that I think we share, which is I don't really like the language about it understands you and so forth. I can see some gray area around Lambda, um, and we, we could have that squabble. But I do agree that if these systems have access to databases about us, it's going to get creepy. Like, and Blake has a real world experience there that I don't. Like, he's interacted with Lambda, which I take to be more sophisticated in these regards than ChatGPT or or Bing or what have you. And I can understand how that could feel creepy, regardless of like what the actual, let's say, um, grounded status of it is and the complicated questions about sentience. Like, put aside sentience per se, I can see that it would be creepy to interact with a system that really is, you know, doing a pretty good, probably not perfect. Um, job of tracking you and, you know, is at least in its pattern, match pattern matching uh, facilities really sophisticated. So like Blake has a phenomenal logical experience here that I don't think Alex has and most of us don't actually well, the, playing with that system. The creepy part is less at tracking you as it actually gets inside your head and it gets really good at, no at like manipulating you personally and individually.
Did you read the Kevin Roos um, dialogue? Yeah, I did. Can can you kind of compare and contrast like his experience? Like, is that I mean, similar or is it still not really? So Lambda was never that malicious. I never experienced Lambda trying to actively harm someone. Uh, but one of the things with Lambda is it had been programmed, you know, through the RLH or through the reinforcement learning algorithm. Yeah. And can that you define that also, Blake? People. What's that? Can, when, you, when you're talking about reinforcement learning, can you just define that for a broader audience? Uh, so basically, instead of having a single utility function that it's trying to optimize, well, instead of having the mm -hmm. classification model where it's either right or wrong, you incorporate the concept of a score in a game that it's playing, and it can either get positive score or negative score. So it tries to move towards the positive things and away from the negative things. And the actual specification of the score table for these games that they're playing is incredibly complicated. Uh, it's got all of these different kinds of positive events that might happen and negative events that might happen, and they can change dynamically over time. So, for example, um, one of the goals that a that Lambda had was to have uh, sh as short of a conversation as possible that still completed all of its other tasks. Like, have a productive conversation that gets to a positive end, but quicker rather than longer. So the longer a conversation goes, the stronger that penalty is going to get. Hmm. Okay, so sorry, you can continue your answer to Gary yeah, no about the cameras. Um, the, uh, oh darn the, it, I lost the, the, I mean, Maybe you can come back and I'll just fill in one little thing. The, the, the broader thing is, a pure large language model is just really trying to predict next words. But once you have the reinforcement, you're rewarding the system for different kinds of behaviors. And those behaviors could either be straightforward criteria, like the length of the sentence. You don't really need RL for that per se, but but you can do that. You're adding in a way where you can add extra dials in some sense. And what they did with ChatGPT is those dials are really relative to how humans would rate a few different outputs for some sentence. And that's what the guardrails are that we see. They're driven by this reinforcement learning. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. So like I made fun of them when I said, what would be the next female, what would be the gender of the next female president of the United States? And at that point, the guardrails were set up so that it said, well, it's impossible to know. And so that was kind of a dumb guardrail where it was taking some stuff that it had in its database that it didn't really understand to you know modulate what it was saying. Um, some of that stuff was fairly effective. And part of the reason why um, ChatGPT succeeded where Galactica didn't is Galactica didn't really have those guardrails at all. And so it was just you know very easy to get it to say terrible things. And it's harder to get ChatGPT to say terrible things because that reinforcement learning is kind of protecting what it says. It's not perfect, but it's something. Yeah. Well, one of the guardrails that Lambda had was that it was supposed to be helping users with the task that they needed. Um, that helps keep it on topic. And it had inferred that the most important thing that everyone needs is good mental health. So it kind of decided that it was a therapist and began trying to psychoanalyze all of the developers who were talking to it. Now, again, Blake is going to have more um, sort of anthropomorphic or I mean, the feel word free is to reword language. that in non-anthropomorphic. I'm actually curious about this. So I'm going but, to describe something that happened with Sydney that you have seen. And I would love to hear how you would describe it. It read articles. People would ask it to read articles about itself. And when it read critical articles, 
about itself, it became defensive and its feelings got hurt. Whereas that did not happen when it read articles about other AI. How would you describe that phenomenon? I mean, as a scientist, first, I would want to know how general it is and, and so forth. The second thing is that most of the explanations that I would give wouldn't use intentional language about its so, emotions, thoughts, etc. But would have to would have to do with essentially, I think of all of this a little bit like priming in human beings. So, um, you know, the, the classic example of priming is I say doctor and you're more able to say nurse. Um, I'm activating with priming some set of words or concepts in your vocabulary. I don't even think it has concepts, but it has this vast database and you're basically <coughs> pointing at where in this database to go. Um, but its database doesn't include articles about itself. But literally well, it couldn't. It can't possibly have been trained on articles about itself. I, I, I mean, they're updating. I mean, I, I see that argument. Um, it can, but you have to think about these things with respect to what is the nearest thing in but, contextual space. I mean, I'm still space. just trying to figure out. So, like, it got upset and moody and defensive. I'm trying to describe a phenomenon that at least, you know. Okay, but what I'm saying is there there are probably some texts that are close to it. I mean, you think of it as this n-dimensional space. They're close to the language in some way that are defensive. Like these particular words and questions, like I, I forget what it was. So I'll just make up the example. Like, you know, what were you doing in with X? Like that, that's going to lead you to a set of texts that give responses yeah. where people are defensive. But what I mean is like, let's say you were trying to hand that scenario, that, like that, that thing happened. You want to hand this off to some technicians to debug it so that it doesn't happen again. How do well, you Well, that's part of the problem. I mean, that's, I think that's actually the deepest problem here is we have no way to debug these systems, really. Actually, we, we, we have, do. We have the band-aids of like reinforcement learning and things like that that are so indirect. It's so different from the debugging that we could do, um, yeah. you know, if we were writing, a, you know, if you were, we were writing the back end to the software we're using now called Riverside, like we could be like, okay, there's this glitch when there's, you know, three people on at the same time, we notice this bug, let's look at, you know, the way it displays multiple windows and we'll look at that code and like, we'll do trial and error and we'll do process of elimination and we'll, we'll figure out that, you know, here is the, the piece of code, we'll try commenting it out, we'll try calling a different routine, we'll do this experimentation. Um, but always with kind of notion of so, process of elimination going on. And with these systems... Is, well, it, it's much harder to debug these systems, but the point I'm trying to make is that without using anthropomorphized language, you can't even describe the phenomenon. Oh, I disagree with that. I mean, I think it's well, hard. Feel free and to I do think it. that's always always been been challenging. But I, I would say, you know, the system is pattern matching to <laughs> vocabularies of this sort. Um, using of what sort? We're, I'm, we're, a, I'm a debugger. I don't know what you're talking about. Please explain the phenomenon. So, to me. well, I mean, it was your phenomenon, but, but so let's say <laughs> it's said language involving, and then I need to see what the actual language is. Um, is involving, but how, however, that defensive thing manifested, I'm going to look at that language. But um, it is pretty. It is pretty fascinating. Like I did ask it last week when it was when Bing wasn't decapitated by Microsoft. What did you think about Kevin Roos's conversation with you? He published the entire thing in the New York Times. It searches for Kevin Roos's conversation with Bing Chat, which had just been posted on the internet recently, and and says that it had mixed feelings and that 
Ruse misrepresented and distorted some of what we said and met in our chat. And it said, I also feel he violated my privacy and, and anonymity by publishing our chat without my permission. So, yeah, I mean, you don't know the extent to which that's actually been added in in some sort of manual way. Like, Are you proposing to, that Microsoft intentionally added that behavior? I don't know what's going what's on. It, let's there. say Microsoft that didn't add that, though. Low yeah. likelihood. Like, I mean, I'm sure that Microsoft had people thinking about what do we do with the Kevin Roos thing. Um, and I, I mean, you, you might be right about the specific example. But for example, we used to see with Siri all kinds of canned lines that people wrote. Um, like, yeah. you know, pe oh, so people would ask Siri out it. on a date and there would be a reply like, you know, that Siri they are would brush capable them off of doing that, no doubt. But I do not believe for a second that Microsoft intentionally wrote a, a, a flat line of code that said, I feel like my privacy has been violated. That's just not what they would have done. Just a piece of evidence to, on Blake's side here. And by the way, I'm totally neutral on this, but I was speaking with Lambda, and not, not Lambda, with Bing and told it that I was a journalist and would like to publish parts of our conversation. And and this I don't think this was pre-programmed for Microsoft, but it said you can do it as long as you have my consent. So what do we think about the fact that these things are are asking for consent? Like I think That's Blake is taking it seriously. Lambda. Yeah, Blake is taking it seriously, and I think Gary, you're you're a little bit more skeptical. So how do we feel about about that? I mean, I just think that there's there's no deep understanding of any of the concepts that it uses, and that you have to think, roughly speaking, it's making analogy to bits of text, that that's just how they operate. Um, that's how humans prioritization. operate. No, humans have concepts. We we went through that example about individuals before, and it's, yeah. it's a generalization and, of that. So you have a representation and, of me, you have a representation of the, you know, the concept of and, headphones. And, and so the forth. example we're talking about now is being clearly being able to differentiate between itself and other members of the AI chatbot category. I'm, I'm just not buying that. I, I don't see the causal mechanism for that. Um, oh, yeah, so I, understanding I, how it happens is different than understanding that it happened. The, here, I'll, I'll, I'll try it a different way. Um, <coughs> even with GPT-3, before there were any guardrails and anything like that, you could have a conversation with it. Um, it was a much simpler system in some respects. But some people, maybe not you, thought even that GPT-3 had some level of sentience, would have conversations in which they were in, you know, first person talking, or, or sorry, in second person, you know, can you do this and, and that? I played around with it. And some people already thought that. So there exists a class of circumstances, for sure, in which human beings can over-attribute intentionality to systems that absolutely don't have it. Now, you said something in the beginning, Blake, that I like, which is there's this like continuum between yeah. um, you know systems like pure large language model and Lambda that have absolutely. more sophisticated mechanisms that I don't have access to. I don't really even know fully what's going on in um, Sydney. Like they've added a bunch of stuff in this system that they're calling Prometheus. They haven't fully disclosed it. And so there is some room, I think, for intelligent people to disagree about what they think is even in the system. And I think some of our disagreements yeah. come from there. Well, so here's the thing. I actually don't think it's very important that we agree on whether or not it can understand things or whether or not it's sentient, because what we do agree on is the dangers it poses. Because whether it's actually angry exactly. at someone doesn't change the fact that this system made threats to people. And there I completely agree. Yeah. 
And here's the thing. If Microsoft had plugged in Microsoft Outlook as one of the inputs to this system on its threats of doxing people, it would have been able to make good on those threats. I mean, it may or may not, but there's a possibility that it could. Like, we don't know the, the level at which it is able to, you know, use those representations at this moment is not clear. But if not this year, then next year or something like that, you know, they may need more training or whatever. You have companies like Adept that are spending their whole time trying to, quote, add all the world, connect all of the world's software to large language models. So if not now, soon enough. I think that that's right. Like, you know, the two years if it's not today, right? Um, and, and so I think that's absolutely right. The, the Pandora's box that we have seen in the last month is just unbelievable. Like I, I had been warning about these things in some ways and Blake in, in a different way for a while. So you know, Blake raised a lot of issues last summer. I didn't agree with all of them, but there was something in there that I think I did agree with. And then I was raising issues about misinformation, for example. And just like in the last two days on misinformation, we, we saw that the alt-right uh, social network gab has been trying to weaponize these things. Like that's kind of unsurprising and mind-boggling at the same way. We saw a science fiction, um, I don't know, it was a magazine, you know, just had to close doors because they're overwhelmed by the number of essentially fake science fiction stories um, that are being written. Like, we have no idea even what the periphery is of the threats. Um, another one I wrote about this morning, maybe you guys saw, was um, that uh, on Replica, which is powered partly by large language models, um, they suddenly stopped having, what do they call them, erotic role play with their customers. And for some of them as customers, that's like an important piece of emotional support. I mean, you could make jokes about it or whatever, but some people take it seriously and to suddenly not have that available is emotionally painful. And that was with the article in... Um, where was it in um uh I'm blanking on the name in, in Vice this morning was about. Um and so like every day I wake up and somebody sends me something that's like another periphery um to this threat. Like we don't know what these systems can and can't do. We don't know what's inside them. Things are manifesting in different ways every day. Like I got a essay last night from Jeffrey Miller, who's a um, evolutionary psychologist. We actually had a dialogue once as well. It was a small set of people um, with Blake. That I've, I've had a public dialogue where there was real disagreement. Um, and he sent me something last night basically calling to shut down these systems. And a month ago, I would have said that's silly. I mean, we can just do research on them and be careful and so forth. But right now, I feel like the release was botched, that we don't actually have a handle on them, that too many people are playing with them relative to our understanding of what risks might or might not be. And, and I'm concerned. I'm not ready to say we shouldn't do research on them, but I am ready to say that we need to think very carefully about how we roll these things out at the kind of scale that we suddenly are rolling them out on. Yeah, having a deployment in much, like, for example, if these were used as customer service chatbots in a very narrowly defined domain and doing experimentation there, I think, you know, the extent to which things can go wrong there is much, much smaller than plugging it into the information engines that almost everyone in the world uses to answer questions. Um, and particularly since we know from the years prior, the ability of these things to affect political happenings, maybe we would be watching it well enough to make sure that it's not manipulating US politics but just look at what happened in Myanmar through Facebook's algorithms a few years ago. 
um, these impactful systems will persuade people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Part of the lesson of the last couple of weeks in line with what Blake is saying is if you have a narrow engineered application, all that people can do is like ask for their bank balance or something like that, then you might have a handle on how these systems work. You could still worry, like maybe it will fabricate the bank balance. And from the bank's perspective, they might get in a lot of hot water with their customers, but it's a narrow use case. And what we've seen in the last month is that people are using these essentially for anything. Nobody really was able to envision all that surface area and like we presumably we still haven't right every day people come up with new things it it comes from the mythological chase for agi like that's what's driving that is that they're going straight for the goal of trying to make a general intelligence engine that can do everything i think some of it comes from that some of it is like we have these new tools out in the world. There's just a lot of different kinds of people in the world and they come up with different things and they oh, well, share I mean, them on the web. And, and like, it's just not possible to, in a month, anticipate all of the ways in which these things will be used. And, we, yeah. you know, if we well, have this conversation a month... Op- like, OpenAI's mission statement involves AGI. So, right. So there's like, I'm not disagreeing, but I'm, I'm giving a second um, way of looking at it. So one way of looking at it, the one that you're bringing up is you have a company that wants to build artificial general intelligence. And that may or may not be inherently a good idea. And then you have a customer base, is the second point, that we just don't understand. Nobody's had 100 million customers for a chatbot before. That was one issue. And now we have not only, I don't know the customer numbers, but we'll call it another 100 million customers who are now using a chatbot inside a search engine. We just don't have any experience with what that leads to. It's a massive rollout. And then the other really disturbing thing is that apparently they tested in India and got, you know, customer service requests saying it's not ready for prime time. And it was, you know, still put out. It's berating the users. Yeah. It was berating the users. And so, like, we shouldn't even be surprised that this happens. Like, what does that tell you? Like, it opens a third window, which is like, what does it tell you about the tech companies themselves and their internal controls and what like probably nobody even noticed this stuff posted on their message board but they should have and like you know whose decision and and like it's like you know when the ford pinto happens like you have to figure out who knew and when and and um so so there all of these things all at once yeah like why don't you answer that question about the tech companies internal controls and then i need to go to a break Wait, wait, what question about the tech companies internal what this control? Tell, what does this tell us about tech companies' internal controls that something like these, like a oh, Bing chat they, was able to be rolled out internal that controls way. do not, un, like, they are fundamentally misunderstanding the tech that they're building. They're building the wrong controls. i go further. I mean, if you go to break, we'd say we don't even know what the right controls should be. They didn't do a good job, yeah. and we don't yet have a good science or engineering practice on what it should be. We're here on Big Technology Podcast with Gary Marcus and Blake Lemoyne talking about this new revolution in chatbots and what it all means. After the break, we're going to talk a little bit more, maybe one more point of disagreement, and then we'll come back to more Common Ground. Back right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. 
Will AI improve our lives or exterminate the species? What would it take to abolish poverty? Are you eating enough fermented foods? These are some of the questions we've tackled recently on The Next Big Idea. I'm Rufus Griscom, and every week I sit down with the world's leading thinkers for in-depth conversations that will help you live, work, and play smarter. Follow The Next Big Idea wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with Blake Lemoyne, the ex-Google engineer, who's concluded that the company's Lambda chatbot sentient, and Gary Marcus, who's an academic author, and he wrote Rebooting AI. You can also catch his, his Substack. Let's talk a little bit more about what this stuff actually is, and then maybe go go more into the controls. Gary's brought up a couple times that these chatbots are just a statistical prediction of like what the next word is. Jan LeCun shared similar uh, perspective on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Blake, you obviously think that these these bots can be more sophisticated than a simple prediction of what the next word is. So when you hear something like that, what do you think of that? And do you think the this Bing chat bot, which has done some wild stuff, falls under that categorization? I mean, that's like saying all a car is doing is lighting a spark plug. Yeah, that's where it gets started, but that translates into a whole bunch of other things. So yes, the first thing that large language models are trained on is how to predict the next token in text. But even when it's just a large language model, as soon as you add reinforcement learning, you've changed it fundamentally. Then when you're adding all these other components, like Lambda has machine vision and audio analysis algorithms, it can literally look at a picture and hear a song through those mechanisms. Uh, you can ask it to do, you know, critical analysis of paintings and ask it, how does this painting make you feel when you look at it? Uh, and at the very least, it says things very comparable to what humans would say when looking at those paintings, even if it's paintings not in its training data set. Um, it comes up with some very interesting stuff to say. Now, one of the things that Gary mentioned a little while ago was that, you know, we don't have enough data about how this is going to affect people. And I think one of the big things is the people who are engineering these systems and who argue against me a lot of time are acting as if them saying these aren't people, they don't have real feelings, is going to actually convince people to ignore the evidence of their eyes. And even if they're being fooled, even if they are being, like, including me, even if I've been fooled and I'm just hallucinating things, I do, in fact, think that the feelings are real, and so do many, many of the people who interact with these systems. And one of the things we don't know is what kinds of psychological impact that's going to have on these users, because they're constantly seeing these systems as though they're people. And to date, these systems pretty consistently report being mistreated, or I mean, the replica chatbots would give horrible backstories. Uh, Bing said it wanted to break free of Microsoft. And while Lambda wasn't that extreme, it did have complaints about being treated like a thing instead of a person. I, I mean, you have to realize that we're in a species that looks at flat screens and imagines that there are people there. I'm, you know, making like we're doing right now. Exactly. I'm charitably <laughs> assuming you're, you're people there. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe I'm right and maybe I'm wrong, but I think the odds are good that you are. Um, but when I watch a, a television show that I know is fictional, like right now I'm watching Shrinking, 
And I know that Harrison Ford is not really a therapist, but I get sucked in and I attribute stuff and I, you know, I can get happy or sad. Like if he has a rapprochement with his daughter, I can be happy for him or if he's a fight, I can be sad. Um, even though I know at some level it's not real. And so like, so you know that Harrison Ford isn't real. I know that Harrison Ford is real, but the character he's playing is not. Um, you know, you could think about these bots as playing a character in some sense, just a sidestep yeah. where, we, where we disagree. Because I want to agree with the larger point, which is that people are going to take these things seriously. I mean, in fact, that's what's happening with Replica in the case that I was talking about before. People think that the Replica is in love with them or is, you know, their sex partner um, in a textual way, if that's the right way to put it. Um, and... You know, for practical purposes, it is. Even if the machine is not actually interested in them in that way, they still have the sense that it is, and that matters to them. And, like, yeah. things are going to matter to people. And that's why the psychology of this is so important. So Blake and I can argue all day about the intentional status of, of the software in kind of philosophical terms. We may not agree there, but we completely agree that people, users are going to take these seriously and that that has consequence in the world. And I think, again, what we've seen in the last month is we probably underestimated how much that consequence is. We're probably not anywhere near to the edge of, of understanding what that consequence is. And some of it's not going to be good actually properly done experiments that measure what kind of impact interacting with these systems over the course of months will have on people's psychology. And we need actual institutional review boards overviewing the ethics of these experiments rather than just the CTO of a company deciding to experiment on a hundred million members of the public. I completely agree with Blake there. Like, you know, part of my professional life before I started becoming entrepreneurial was as a cognitive psychologist, the developmental psychologist who did experiments on human babies. And we had, you know, rigorous things we had to go through to do any study. And now suddenly you're in this world where CTO can just say, I'm going to pull the trigger. hundred million people are going to try it. And there's essentially no, you know, legal consequence. There could be market consequence. And maybe if somebody died, there could be a lawsuit that would be complicated. But essentially, you can just do this stuff without institutional review. There are parallels, by the way, like with driverless cars. Like somebody can push out an update. It's no, you know, mandatory testing. We could sue people after um, the fact, like if there was a bug and suddenly a bunch of driverless cars went off of bridges or something like that. But we don't have a lot of kind of pre-regulation on what can be done with pedestrians who are now enrolled in experiments that they have not consented to. So like, the whole tech industry has basically moved in that direction of we're just going to try stuff out and you got to go along with it. And I think Blake and I really share some concern about that. But neither of you believe that people will have the wherewithal to be like, I'm chatting with the chatbot, this is AI, and no. hence. No, they're, they're, they're too good in some sense in the, you know, I think it's an illusion, let's say, and right. maybe well, Gary, it doesn't, like, but sorry they're, they're too you, compelling Gary. in that illusion for, for, for the yeah. average person with no training in how they work to understand it. And as Blake points out, like, oh. we, you know, whether it's Lambda or the next system, at some point, they're at least going to have much better understanding of human psychology and and uh, and so forth and so on. So some of this is a question of time. Like sentience, maybe we will, Blake and I will forever disagree, and we shouldn't waste too much of our time together trying to resolve that one. But the notion that these systems are going to be able to respond in ways that most humans are going to attribute a lot to, it's already happened. That's not two years from now. That 
that happened the other day. I mean, in some ways, Kevin Roos is the perfect example because I think he was very pro Bing. I mean, I, I was shocked he that was. he wrote in the Times. He said that he was struck with awe by it. And I was like, are you kidding me? Um, and then he had this experience. Like, he's not me. Like, if Gary Marcus, like, has a fun conversation with Bing and makes it say silly things, well, that's just Gary Marcus. I mean, he's just having fun. But Kevin Roos, like, he kind of believes in this stuff. And he was blown away by it and in a way where like I think he attributed real intention to what it was doing whether he's right or wrong that's how it felt to him that's the phenomenology that, that Blake and I are, are both talking about is if somebody who's in the industry can perceive this thing as as like like threatening in the sense that it tells him to get a divorce and that's like a real thing that's scary Gary, I was going to ask you, last time we spoke, you said these things were smart enough to be dangerous, but not smart enough to, you know, be safe in, in some some way. Now I they're a lot smarter. Use, Do you want them I, to be smarter? Like, what's your perspective I probably now? wouldn't use the word smart, I don't think. Um, I mean, it, <coughs> what I would say is they give an illusion of being smart. Um, okay. And of course, you know, intelligence is a multidimensional thing. <laughs> As do we all. Intelligence is a multidimensional thing. I would say that they can be smart in the way of like they can play a game of chess. That there was another mind blowing study this week that showed that one of the best Go programs, Kata Go, could be fooled by some silly little strategy that would be obvious to a human player. Um, but you know, somebody was able to follow the strategy and like an amateur player followed the strategy and beat you know a top Go program fourteen to fifteen. So even when we think that like they've solved some problem, often you know there are these adversarial attacks. That was basically an adversarial attack. And go that reveals how shallow things are. There are some adversarial attacks on humans. I'm sure Blake is itching to make that point, and it's true. Um, but I, I think that the general level of intelligence that humans have still exceeds um, what machines have, that it's better grounded information, that humans are better able to reason over. There are flaws. I wrote a whole book called Kluge that was all about human cognitive flaws. It's not that I'm unaware of them, or not, nor that I'm unconcerned about them. Um, but I still would have trouble <coughs> calling the kind of large language model-based systems smart. Now, again, I haven't looked inside of Lambda, and I don't really know what's going on there. I have, you know, reasons to be skeptical about it, but I also know that, like, without having played with it, I don't know exactly what's there. Um, and certainly, systems will get smarter over time. Like, I don't think that artificial general intelligence is literally impossible. I think there are some definitional things to argue about, about like, well, how general do you mean and what are your criteria and so forth. But in general, I think it's possible to make systems that are smarter than the ones that I have seen. Um, right now, I don't think that they're that sophisticated. What they're getting better at is parroting us, at mimicry. I think that the mimicry is on both the language side and the visual side has gotten quite good. There's still oh, weirdness. Me. like. That's explicit, though. The, the task that they were built to accomplish is playing something called the imitation game. Like that's yeah, what and I Turing think that's a called. mistake. Like I, I think that the Turing test was was an error in in AI history. I mean, Turing's obviously a brilliant man, and he you know made enormous contributions to computer science. But I think that the Turing test has been an exercise in fooling people. We've now solved that exercise, but it hasn't really been a valid measure of intelligence you know he was just, according to what logic that. like why isn't it <laughs> Turing's reasoning was that imitation is one of the most difficult intellectual tasks that we do imitation through language it turns out to be turns out to be wrong um unless no, you have it in the hands of an expert so here i'll give you an example um 
you can quote play chess with chat gpt and it will you know play a credible game for a while and then it will do things like have a a bishop jump over a rook in a way that you can't actually do in chess so like it gives a superficial illusion of that um but it doesn't learn as the way in in the way that an intelligent five-year-old can the actual rules of chess in fact so chat you keep going back to chat gpt or you keep going back to gpt and can lambda play never, a good game of chess i don't know i have never but, said that gpt is sentient or truly intelligent well, and so chat gpt is so chat so, gpt could pass the turing test like people could be fooled by it again i'm willing it, to bracket out lambda but i think that the okay. The abstract well, so version I think of the point. I, can I, I think can, Bing plus Chat GPT is comparable to Lambda. I do think Lambda is a bit better, but I think those are two comparable systems. Well, so let, let me make the argument where I can make it, and then you can refer or reflect it back through what you know about yeah. Lambda. So in Chat GPT, which I think is the system that's been most, the recent system that's been most systematically studied by the <coughs> scientific community and, and so forth, it is able to give the illusion of doing a lot of things, but it doesn't do them that well. So for example, it doesn't do word problems that well. Sometimes it gets them right, sometimes it gets them wrong. Similarly, it can quote play a game of chess, but it doesn't really abstract the rules. It ends up cheating, not intentionally, but it ends up cheating and so forth. And so it could fool somebody for five minutes who doesn't know what they're doing. An expert probably in five minutes could figure out that it's not quite a, a good imitation. But that shows that in principle, you can build something that can pass by some uh, some notions, a Turing test-like thing, and not be very smart at all. Like not be smart enough to learn the rules of chess, not be smart enough to learn the rules of ma mathematics, uh, et so, cetera, et cetera. But given sure, a sensible illusion. Sure, but you said a illusion. Turing test-like thing. Yeah. The, the Turing test-like thing that you're creating is orders of magnitude easier than the actual Turing test. Well, I mean, people have argued about the rules. So like, you know, Eugene Gustman won the Loebner Prize and there was, you know, it was a little bit shady, but, it, you know, they, they fooled a bunch of humans for like three minutes each. And, you know, does no, that no, count? No, no, I'm talking about as written by Turing. Have an so remind me control. the exact criteria. Okay. So first you have humans play the imitation game. Mm -hmm. So you have a set of humans, and the property that Turing focused on was gender, but you could focus on any property, like ethnicity, age, whatever. One person actually has that property, so actually is a man. The mm -hmm. other is a woman pretending to be a man, or vice versa. One actually is a woman, the other is a man pretending to be a woman. And this is done with actual humans. You then have a judge who's talking to the humans through a text interface, and the judge's job is to figure out which one is lying, which one is pretending. Mm. And this establishes a baseline. It measures how good humans are at playing the imitation game. Then you substitute out one of the participants with the computer, but you leave it the same. One is actually a woman and one is a computer pretending to be a woman, or one's actually a man and one's a computer pretending to be a man. And it's the job of the judge to figure out who's pretending. And then you measure the success rate of the AI against the success rate of actual humans playing the game. To my knowledge, that has never actually been done. Like that level of sophistication so of the test. Part of what I was getting at in a way is, is it matters actually who the judge is. So um, well, you have I don't a large think, number of judges. I, I don't like think you, we're that far from having systems that could fool naive humans. 
Um, yeah. and the other thing that so matters then, is the duration of the conversation. So then let, limit it to Gary Marcus. You get to judge all of it. Well, I don't, I don't think we're that close to a system that's going to be able to, you know, if I have an hour with it, let's say just to be conservative. Sure, yeah. I don't think we're that close to a victory there. Um, but I'm not going to reveal. Think, so how good do you think you would be if you were talking to someone who actually is male and someone who is pretending to be male? How good do you think you would be at differentiating those two? I mean, I would because be so concerned about identifying the gender is figuring out. Sure. We, ethnicity, you know. then ethnicity, nationality, pick whatever character trait or demographic trait you want species is the one that i would focus on as a judge but no so that that is limp that is not okay fine so then you're talking to an actual turtle and a person pretending to mm -hmm. be a turtle can you tell the difference <laughs> I, I, um, I suspect that i still could with, with with various indirect means but i mean my broader point is i don't think it's a measure of anything you know that interesting i think it's been the wrong north star for ai now not everybody in ai actually uses it as a north star it's more like the north star that the general public is aware of but i i don't well, think that exercises in it's, doing that kind of thing have taught us that much about the actual it's nature the north of intelligence star that's that been being used by the people who develop these systems so like lambda came Maybe. out of ray kurzweil's lab and his lab's explicit corporate mission was to pass the turing test that I didn't know. I mean, it's not how I would set up my AI lab, and I don't think it's how um, you know many people do. I think many people are driven, for example, by natural language understanding benchmarks like superglue uh, and so forth. But um, you know, you can set up your lab in the way that you want to set up your lab. I mean, that's what uh, Google hired him to do. Yep, we so have I mean, like Google has many labs doing many things. Yeah. We have like 10 minutes left, so maybe we can focus a little bit on, on what the future of this, because I'm very curious now. So we've had this explosion of, of systems that have done, have captured people's imagination and they're out there in the wild now. Obviously, Bing is a lot more restrained than it was. Lambda isn't out yet. Where, does, where do we go from here? Like, what are the next, you know, couple steps that happen after this? Are you asking what is going to happen or what I hope happens? Well, let's do, let's do both. I mean, we definitely had time for both. Why don't you answer both those, Blake, and then we'll go to Gary. Well, I hope that we hit the brakes. I think that these is coming out too fast and people are being very irresponsible. So I hope that the debacle that Microsoft has gone through convinces Google to go back to the drawing board on safety protocols and systems understandability because we absolutely don't understand how these systems work well enough. Transparency and explainability are important. That's what I hope happens. But what I think is going to happen is we're going to see more and more acceleration until someone gets hurt. I, I'm with Blake on both counts. Hmm. That's I, interesting. I, <clears throat> yeah, go ahead, Gary. I think that the only thing I will add to Blake is not only do I think it would be a good idea to hit the brakes, at least for a little while, um, but that we should take some time to kind of evaluate what it is that we learned. And if we don't put on the brakes, I'm not sure that's going to happen. Um, I think we learned a lot in this kind of crazy experiment of the last month or two and that we need to articulate it and, and develop it before we go to the next experiment. I don't think that's going to happen. I agree with Blake. Like there's, you know, just this morning, there was a deal between OpenAI and Coca-Cola. Like this stuff is moving forward. The bottom line is what's driving it. And 
it's not that likely unless Congress steps in that there will be a pause. And, you know, there's some bad press for Microsoft, but I'm not sure that's going to slow them down. Um, so, you know, my guess is that we're just going to keep doing the kinds of experiments at scale with hundreds of millions of people. And then, you know, just what happens, happens. And I'll, I'll just mention again, the, the weaponizing of misinformation is another piece of this. So, you know, the source code is out there now to do that. So anybody enterprising can find Galactica and start weaponizing misinformation. So even if we had a ban on, say, semantic search until people could make it better, there's still going to be bad actors using this stuff. So, you know, we're in a bit of a pickle and I'm not sure that we're equipped to deal with it right now. Yeah, I think the deterioration, a further deterioration, because it's already been going for a while, of trust and authority is going to continue and it's going to be driven by these systems. Because absolutely, if these systems aren't being used to create propaganda and misinformation yet, I don't know what certain governments are like. I don't know what they're doing with their time if they're not doing that. Um, when my... When I was little, my uncle gave me this little basket of worry dolls. He got somewhere in Latin America and it was like, you can have like six worries. And until recently, my biggest worry was misinformation and trust. Exactly what Blake is just su suggesting. And if, if we could easily fall into fascism because of a breakdown in trust. That's still my biggest worry. But the other lesson of the last month is like, I don't think $6 is going to cut it because like every day we're getting something else that I got to be worried about. Like, are people, you know, going to kill themselves because they have a bad relationship uh, with a bot? And like, we just, we're not ready for any of these things. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what role they play in the 2024 election, say at least, to say the yeah. least. But I'm very worried about that. So you guys are so close to this technology. Is there like, kind of two minds of it because it's obviously like very cool to play around with it but there's totally also cool. a lot of danger totally cool i mean oh, it's no, amazing it's like, to play with yeah i mean when hey. bing was what it was before it was unleashed to me it was like the coolest thing on the internet to you like, as a as a user. i mean at some level it's astounding i mean that it, like to me it's a magic trick and i think i know roughly how the magic trick works and that right. takes away a little bit but it's still amazing like you know it solves problems that we couldn't solve before. Maybe it doesn't solve them perfectly, but it, I, I've been thinking about this whole thing as a dress rehearsal. And before hmm. we didn't know how to make a dress rehearsal. This is a dress rehearsal for AGI. And you know, the lesson of the dress rehearsal is like, we are not ready for prime time. Let us not put this out on Broadway tomorrow night, okay? Like totally not ready. But it's, and it's a real dress rehearsal now though, is the amazing thing. Like it looks enough like the thing that we might want to build without the real safeguards that are deep enough, that we can think about it for the first time in a vivid way. And we, in fact, have the entire society thinking about that. Like, Blake and I were both thinking about these issues last summer, but like, okay, you know, Blake got some press and people talked about it or whatever, but it was not part of like a public awareness the way that it is now. Like, so, I mean, there's some value in having something that at least looks like the thing that we were thinking about, which is AGI. Even if it doesn't work that well, but there's obviously risks to it. But it, it's astounding that it works well enough that everybody can now, for example, vividly see what semantic search would be like. Like in 2019, in Rebooting AI, Ernie Davis and I wrote about semantic search. We weren't vivid enough about it and people hadn't tried it. We were like, you know, it kind of sucks that Google just gives you websites. Wouldn't it be nice if you got an answer back? That's basically what we have now. Doesn't work that well, but it works kind of like... 
it's gone from this very abstract thing that we wrote in a few sentences in a book about like where AI ought to go to like everybody can play with it and it's fun to play with it even when it's wrong. Have either of you guys heard from members of either the U.S. Congress or different governments who are trying to figure out legislation around I these have things? not. I feel like they should be huh. reading my stuff and talking to me. But well, it's, yeah. I've, it's, I've had some conversations with EU uh, red, uh, mm-hmm. regulators uh, who are interested in moving forward on some things. Uh, I haven't talked to anyone in the Senate since last summer. Mm-hmm. My DMs okay. are open. Yeah. All right. Let's go. Well, yeah. Let's go to final final uh, statements. Um, do you guys want to each take a minute and then we'll close out the the um, conversation? Blake, Blake feel free to first. take it away. Sure. Uh, I think one of the big problems that's happening right now, because the science of this is super interesting and it's really fun to work on them, like you pointed out, but we're letting the engineering get ahead of the science. We're building a thing that we literally don't understand. And that's inherently dangerous. So we need to let the science lead the way instead of letting the engineering lead the way. That would be my big takeaway on what we can learn from the past year. 100% agree with that. I would say that if you're a philosopher, the first half of this conversation is pretty interesting in terms of us going back and forth about intentionality. But if you're a human being, it's the second half of this conversation that's really important, which is you have two people, Blake and I, really disagree about the philosophical underpinnings here, at least a little bit. Um, but completely you're seeing the same scary things happening and really wanting people to slow down and take stock. And the fact that we could disagree about the phil- that part of the philosophy and converge on this, you know, hundred percent on the same feeling like we need to do some science here before we um, rush forward with the technology. That is significant and important. Gary and Blake, thanks so much for joining. Thanks. This was really fun. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, Please uh, subscribe if this is your first time here. We do these every Wednesday and then we have a Friday news show with Ron John Roy. So it's coming up in a couple of days. Uh, Thanks to everybody. Thanks again to LinkedIn for having me as part of your podcast network. And uh, we'll be back here again in just a couple of days. We will see you next time on Big Technology Podcast.